Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. It's fair to say no one wakes up in the morning thinking about how they're going to pay for their goods and services. Whether commuting to work and it's using your card, cash or even contactless on your phone, you're generally not thinking about the pipes and plumbing and rules required to make that happen, domestically or cross-border. But fortunately for most of us, policymakers and regulators do stay closely attuned to thinking about how we manage, improve and encourage innovation in these areas. And we have seen in the last two weeks or so the European Union published the latest proposals on the next phase of EU payments reform, regulation, review. And this isn't just limited to traditional payments, but also broadening out more broadly into things like open banking and open finance frameworks. And for those of you not yet familiar, what I'm talking about here are the API protocols that are used to enable the sharing of data between providers and across sectors. And also, more interestingly for many, the idea of a new EU central bank digital currency, or as it's become known, a digital euro. I'm Rebecca Park, Managing Director for Global Council. And I'm delighted for today's podcast that we're joined by David Song, our Associate Director of Financial Services, and Constantine Alvinitis, who's based in our Brussels office as one of our senior associates. Both are deep experts in payments and digital assets policy. And we're going to discuss some of these proposals in detail, what it might mean for firms, what it might breed for consumers, but also what it means for other businesses looking to understand the way we pay for goods and services and how that might be changing over the medium term. So there was a huge amount published in these proposals over the different areas of payments, open finance and central bank digital currencies. I think before we dive into the detail and think about some of these issues, it would be really good to get a backdrop of what this package means in its broadest terms why it was brought forward now, and how it's going to evolve. So, David, perhaps if I can start with you covering some of these big questions. Absolutely. I mean, it is worth taking a step back at this stage and just thinking about the broad horizon which we're seeing in Europe, how different member states, so different countries, view payments. It's a very cultural issue that spans different viewpoints, different generations, and it really does introduce complexity. One thing I would say is politicians are increasingly seeing payments as a political force. So where they can make changes, they can directly intervene in the economy. And this is the foundation of our economy effectively. So when you transfer money, when you pay for something, um, you are transferring value across the economy. And I think with that backdrop, it's worth just thinking about it from that perspective. That is why the Commission are, are bringing forward lots of legislative changes and regulatory changes as are the way that we pay effectively and the way that we transact through our economy changes quite dramatically. So in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a massive reduction in the amount of cash used in the economy. And what that's meant in practice is we've seen an increase in digital payments. And again, culturally, that differs across EU member states. In Germany, for example, they still have a very cash-heavy economy, which often people are quite surprised by, versus in France, for example, a heavy use on, uh, on cards. In the Netherlands, it's a heavy use on uh, interbank payments, as we call them. And that's a slightly different payment mechanism that doesn't use the Visa and MasterCard rails effectively to make those transactions. So that backdrop means it's quite complex in terms of the interventions the EU is making. There's obviously where it comes to the reduction in cash, the question around how do we replace that in a way that effectively makes sure that we have an anchor to the financial and monetary system, for example, the ECB being able to directly intervene in monetary policy. 
And that is the backdrop that we see the digital euro proposal, legislative proposal being put forward, but also some of the payment services side of things. So how do we ensure that consumers are protected from fraud when they do make those transactions? What are the basis, basic rules effectively that the banks and non-banks play by to make sure that there is a level playing field? And, and all of this effectively is uh, wrapped up in the uh, six legislative proposals we saw from the European Commission. Thanks, David. You touched on those six legislative proposals. I think it's important that we spell out exactly what those six areas for reform are and the things that people should be looking out for. For those of us that might like to scan the Commission's website for latest publications and documents, and we're not judging you if you are that person. I am that person. <laughs> um, so we have, as I say, six legislative proposals. Uh, what we used to have was a holistic payment services directive, which covered all of the foundational rules for payments across the EU. That's been split effectively into two proposals. One is a regulation, one is a directive. A regulation just means that effectively it's more harmonised across the EU. Um, and lots of the rules are contained within that regulation, a lot of the authorization requirements in the directive. Um, we then have the open finance proposals effectively. Um, that is a, another regulation, um, as well as uh, two. So it is actually five, not six, apologies. Uh, we have uh, two others, which are basically around the legal tender status of cash and effectively making sure that cash is available in the best possible way for uh, citizens across the EU. And then also um, a proposal on the digital euro. Effectively, what that does is puts in place a number of the legislative foundations for the launch of the digital euro. So again, the ECB still needs to make a decision about this, um, but it does lay that legal foundation and allows for the, the kind of dialogue that needs to happen at a citizen level, the debate that needs to happen around whether digital euro is needed and how citizens react to, to the kind of privacy elements of that as well. Right. It's that final area that I want to focus on now, the idea of a digital euro. Um, for many listeners uh, listening from the US or from the UK, uh, it's worth noting that the debates on central bank digital currencies are very different places in very different countries, um, probably with the, the most advanced many ways being Europe right now versus the UK, who are following swiftly with the ideas for a digital pound. And I think it's fair to say still a fairly fundamental philosophical debate in America about how to approach these issues. So looking at the digital euro, ultimately what this is, is a central bank digital currency being operated in a disintermediated manner, i.e. through financial institutions, for consumers to make payments using this newly central backed digital payments. So it would operate uh, to a consumer in many ways like using your normal digital payments, i.e. non-cash paper payments, but the difference being it's backed by a central bank and that difference being fundamentally about a very diff uh, important philosophical approach to money and fiat money. While I'm not supposing we get into that part of the debate today, I think it's worth setting the basis on what we're talking about when we talk about a digital euro. So, Constantine, with that background in mind, how are member states and the European Parliament thinking about a digital euro? The European Union's decision to intensify efforts on a digital euro were triggered by the emergence of global stablecoin projects and advanced work on central bank digital currencies in other jurisdictions. But it was also the result of other factors, such as the decline in the use of cash in the EU and the possibility a European central bank digital currency may offer to reduce the cost of cross-border payments while progressing the EU's strategic autonomy by offering European citizens an alternative means of electronic payment based on a European infrastructure 
reducing in this way the EU's dependence on a few non-EU dominant providers. Since the launch of the European Central Bank's investigation on a digital euro in 2021, the area finance ministers through the Eurogroup have been closely involved in the project, holding regular exchanges on the key political dimensions of a digital euro. Although the European Central Bank will have exclusive competence to authorize the issuance and ultimately issue the digital euro, the member states of the euro area have made it clear that it's its main features and design choices require political decisions that will be taken at the political level. But despite their involvement and continued support for the project, the Member States' considerations towards a digital euro are nuanced. There is nevertheless a recognition that while a digital euro might not be necessary today, the EU should be prepared in case that changes in future. Political groups within the European Parliament are also not yet convinced on the necessity of a digital euro. The question that keeps coming across is whether the digital euro is a solution, solution looking for a problem. In recent months, members of the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee have expressed skepticism on the digital euro, with questions around its added value, privacy, state control, and its role in the financial system. So, Constantine, if this there is success in bringing this proposal forward. Are you effectively saying, if I was in Paris, I could choose to pay for goods and services in a shop without using a Visa card or a MasterCard? That is exactly what I'm saying. That is the objective of the digital euro, essentially to allow instant payments to take place not only within one jurisdiction, but also cross-border. So you've highlighted some of the political concern here and some of the debates that are starting to emerge. Um, between the European Central Bank and the other European institutions. What do you think are the key things that we should be watching out for? So if we're watching these proposals over the next six to 12 months, what does good positive progress look like for those backing into digital euro versus problematic progress um, that may see it slow down or progress prevented? Privacy has been at the center of discussions on the design of the digital euro and will continue dominating the debate. The Commission's proposal excludes full anonymity, it rather takes a risk-based approach that underpins the EU's anti-money laundering framework to minimize the processing of personal data by, by payment service providers and the European Central Bank to what is necessary to ensure the proper functioning of the digital euro. But what does that mean in practice? Online digital euro transactions would follow the same data protection, privacy and AML CFT rules as for private digital means of payments. A higher degree of privacy is, however, envisaged for offline proximity payments, comparable to withdrawals of banknotes at automatic teller machines, in which case no transaction data monitoring should occur. Whether the privacy safeguards introduced in the legislation will suffice to address stakeholders' concerns remains to be seen. We can anyways expect the privacy provisions to be heavily scrutinized by the members of the European Parliament. The discussion is also bound to focus on what the Digital Euro Initiative will, will mean in terms of implementation costs for market participants, mainly merchants and payment service providers. First, merchants will be obligated to accept payments in Digital Euro. This will entail costs for the acquisition of the required infrastructure and the acceptance of Digital Euro payments. Micro-enterprises and non-profit legal entities will be exempted from the obligation but not if they accept comparable digital means of payments, such as debit cards. For payment service providers, the implications are more significant and go way beyond any distribution costs they are likely to incur. 
The basic use of the digital year would be free of charge, meaning it would have a competitive advantage compared to existing means of payment. Other concerns point to the digital euro reducing the market share of existing private electronic means of payment, which would effectively mean lower revenues for payment service providers. And notwithstanding the holding um, caps on the digital euro wallet, there is fear that the placement on, of funds in digital euro wallets risks reducing credit institutions' liquidity, interest income, and potentially impact credit provision. To top it off, the level of charges and fees to be paid by natural persons or merchants to payment service providers would be subject to limits as the mandatory acceptance of digital euro transactions on merchants means that they will have no choice but to accept digital euro payment transactions. So if you look at all these provisions alongside other initiatives, such as on instant payments, financial data access, any retail investments, Questions arise as to whether the EU might be encroaching a little too much into the commercial space of financial institutions. This will be an interesting debate to follow in the coming years. Thanks, Constantine. You touched on an idea there of caps inside the digital wallet and how much a digital euro you might be able to hold. Has there been any indication of the level of those caps? Are we talking hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands? We have heard uh, about a cap in the thousands, but a decision has not yet been, uh, been adopted by the European Central Bank. Um, the European Commission proposal uh, is very clear that this decision uh, is the exclusive competence of the European Central Bank. I think that's going to be a really interesting part of the debate to follow. It mirrors very closely the debate happening in the UK with the Bank of England right now, uh, where they've done a lot of analysis on caps and whether caps somewhere between five and 10,000 sterling uh, would be the right operational level to not impact bank deposits and ultimately, therefore, credit supply into the economy too much. And it's definitely could be a core part of the proposals as we watch this evolve uh, globally. Uh, certainly one interesting piece of research in this space, um, if you look at the analysis undertaken by Atlantic Council, uh, so far every market that has an advanced introduction of a CBDC has actually seen deposits in fiat currency increase. Now, that's quite an interesting statement. What's more telling is no one yet knows why. So I think it's fair to say there's still a lot of unanswered questions and debate happening in this part of the conversation thus far. But David, this session is not entirely about the digital euro, as much as I think we could all quite happily discuss central bank digital currencies for the entirety of this episode. Um, you talked about how broad these five proposals are. Um, what else um, should we be looking for within the payments landscape? How are the changes to payments um, going to operate and impact the broader ecosystem? Yeah, um, I mean, as you say, these proposals are really deep. They cover lots of ground, um, but two areas I think which are really interesting in the, in the latest payment services proposals, which is effectively around, uh, as we're seeing the increase in potential issues of stablecoin, for example, um, Web3 really beginning to develop and actually take hold in a policy mindset uh, and what that might mean actually for the future of payments as well. You're seeing a huge proliferation of the number of payment types that we have across the EU, but also globally as well. And that's providing quite an interesting backdrop to what is quite a technical but very interesting issue, which is stablecoins as they stand at the moment rely very much on the banking system. So when you're issuing a stablecoin, you need to back that effectively one for one with whatever currency you're issuing, whether that's euro, dollar, pounds. Um, and what that means in practice is that is placed with a bank. Um, so that could be a large custody bank, it could be a commercial bank, etc. 
that provides uh, safeguarding services effectively to that stablecoin issuer. Now, what we don't have is the ability for those stablecoin issuers to place the, those deposits directly with a central bank, which is the case in uh, in, in other areas. So one of the proposals is, is very interesting, which is effectively just opening up that facility for stablecoin issuers to place that directly with, uh, with central banks. And that's quite an interesting, I'd say, revolution, actually, in the way that we're thinking about things, because um, that's never been the case before. We have that to an extent within the UK, uh, but that's very interesting from a European construct to actually look for uh, a privately issued stablecoin that would effectively coexist alongside a digital euro. So it poses some quite big and interesting questions around how central banks and how governments are viewing the hedging of uh, effectively different payment types. Um, another would be, as we're seeing in the UK, a massive increase in the amount of scams and fraud within the market. Uh, the protection that, that does come with that um, is being reviewed by the EU. So uh, do you, for example, um, and it's, it's an open question at this stage because it still has to go through the legislative process, but what level do you put that at? So if a consumer, for example, uh, gives their consent to send money, but actually it's a fraudster on the other side of things. Um, how much do you as a bank, as a non-bank, effectively need to protect that consumer? What moral hazards does that introduce? Um, and those are the types of questions that we're seeing come through in the latest payment services proposals. And in terms of how market participants are responding to this, obviously we've looked at this from what the European institutions are trying to achieve, uh, but what does this mean for banks and payment services providers and how are they responding? So, so far, much of the commentary has been focused actually on the digital euro, which is interesting in its own right. And as you mentioned earlier, it really does impact banking business models in particular. And those that are, you know, mutuals, cooperative banks um, in the UK, that would be the equivalent of a building society, for example. They are the most impacted by the digital euro because they don't have the ability to access wholesale markets in the same way that a lot of our commercial banks, uh, a lot of our commercial banks do. So that has been the kind of strongest reaction we've seen so far from uh, from the banking sector in particular. And what does that mean for the Commission proposals? Do we expect a certain degree of flex or change in how things evolve as a result of these early stage responses? Absolutely. I think you can expect lots of flex and the Commission will have built that into the proposals as well. They, they'll have thought about this in advance of those. Um, and, you know, for example, another reaction has been from uh, from merchants saying, why are you forcing us to um, accept a payment type that doesn't even exist today? Something that hasn't even been issued yet and that you haven't made a decision on whether to issue. So it's quite interesting to see those reflections and absolutely this, this will change. I mean, we're looking at proposals being introduced just before the European elections. So what happens in June next year when the parliament uh, goes forward with elections will be quite important in terms of um, how that reflects and actually the political drive that we see. So if we see a, a jump to the centre-right, to the centre-left, that really affects uh, the proposals on the digital euro particularly, but also some of the others as well, just in terms of how interventionist they, they will be. I think we're going to come back to that question on European elections later in the uh, episode. Certainly, it's going to be a key part of the discussions and how things evolve. But before we do that, there's probably one core tenant of the package that we haven't yet touched on, and that is open finance. Um, and it would be really good to understand from you about what we can expect to pan out and what the Commission's trying to do in open finance. But before we do that, it's probably worth a quick crash course reminder in exactly what open finance is and what we mean when we talk about it and how it manifests in our everyday lives. Indeed. So um, it, it is, as you say, quite a technical part of, of the ecosystem. 
Um, we've been on this journey now for, for several years. So this was ever since the first PSD2 proposals came, and that was in 20, 2012. So we've been on this journey for quite some time. Um, what effectively it does mean is the ability for a consumer to um, effect a payment, either in an e-commerce context, a face-to-face context, um, or to share data with a third party effectively. So it's the rules that sit around how how exactly that happens, how harmonized it is, the method by which you do that. And, and for some of the technology buffs that are listening, that would be uh, mandated at the moment through an API. Um, the problem that we've had in the past is there's not enough incentivization for the banks to build good products here. So there's no monetary stream for them to, to take advantage of. It's a harsh way of looking at it, but but fairly true. Um, and what that's meant is actually the quality of the APIs isn't as good as it should be. Um, so these proposals are trying effectively to to incentivize that that type of uh, financial incentive so that banks build better APIs and therefore more harmonized APIs that third parties can make use of. In my world, the APIs I'm familiar with in this space, um, and you're probably going to tell me I'm using the wrong ones here, um, is the when I open my bank account app, um, it is able to show me my other bank accounts uh, with different providers. Or also, um, I know a number of um, uh, colleagues across uh, different industries who use it for their accountancy. And a lot of small, medium-sized businesses use it to align their accountancy software with their bank accounts to support them in kind of understanding their true financial outlook. So is this about encouraging more use cases and broader use cases and opening up the different data streams that firms will be able to access? Exactly that. So at the moment, it's it's focused very much from an open banking perspective on your bank accounts or in EU speak, your payment accounts. Collectively, the EU is trying effectively to push that forward towards uh, towards other use cases. So that could be things like insurance, for example, and your ability to compare insurance products more more easily, um, or it could span into other areas of finance as well. And that's the real use case that they're trying to see. And it's worth looking at this in a kind of broader context as well. So the EU really is trying to, as as it has an aging population, trying to encourage investment from consumers into uh, wider, whether that's pensions or investment areas, and what these proposals do is dovetail very neatly with some of the wider financial services proposals um, on capital markets to effectively allow encouragement and, and kind of the best way to, to find a financial product for a consumer. And I'm assuming these proposals are not operating in a vacuum, sort of separate to wider EU initiatives. So how does the push for open finance fit with the Commission's wider approach to data? So that is a very interesting question. And I think it's something that you know, the, the Commission and the EU has generally been seen as a world-leading voice on, on data protection in particular. Uh, but there are other proposals that kind of dovetail with this quite neatly. One is on, that's just come to um, an agreement within Trilogs, uh, is the e-identity proposals. So the ability for you to port your digital identity effectively across member states. Um, and you can see fairly easily how that dovetails into these types of proposals. So it's really trying to encourage consumers to own their own information and, and to be able to use that in the best possible way. So that's generally beyond protection, the uh, the way that the EU has looked at, at data protection or data sharing rather. Okay, so we've looked at open finance, we've touched on the digital euro and we started to think about what this means for the wider reform of payments across the EU and the eurozone. But ultimately, this is about politics, right? Um, we can see some of the more controversial elements of the proposal. What does it mean for fiat money? What does it mean for the future of banking as we know it? 
what does it mean when it comes to digital identity, but also data protection more broadly? And how does this position the European Union globally when it comes to um, strategic autonomy and maybe the reliance on certain US providers in this space? Constantine, all of that's going to get distilled down um, in the time between now and the European elections. So first of all, it would be useful to understand what are the timelines for these proposals? What are we expecting to happen and when and over what time period? Is this something that's going to get completed in this commission mandate? So the European Commission payments and digital euro proposals will now go through the ordinary legislative process uh, with the European Parliament and the Council of the EU uh, working on their respective negotiating positions before entering interinstitutional negotiations. These are, however, unlikely to start under the current legislative term. European elections in 2024 mean that work will pause for a few months and it will pick up under the new commission and European Parliament towards the end of 2024 or early 2025. This is to say that it will take at least a few years before we see any new measures uh, become applicable. On the digital euro front, uh, it is interesting to say that uh, right before the publication of the, uh, of the proposals, there were questions on whether the framework would be published or not due to controversy, um, firstly on the privacy implications of the digital euro, but also pressure from the member states on its necessity. Uh, this resulted in uh, senior EU institutions officials doing a round of public interventions in support of the digital euro. Separately, uh, and while the uh, European Parliament and the Council are working on their respective negotiating positions, the European Central Bank will continue working on the um, Digital Europe project. It will decide in the autumn of 2023 whether to launch the realization phase of the project. This phase is expected to last about three years. Uh, and it will be the last stage of the Digital Europe project, during which the ECB will work to develop and test the appropriate technical solutions and the necessary business arrangements. A decision on the possible issuance of a Digital Euro would only come after that. And in the near term, we are expecting uh, the Euro system to publish a comprehensive design of a Digital Euro which would comprise all the design elements that have been endorsed by the governing council of the ECB. Uh, and these design will be under public consultation for stakeholders to provide their uh, views. I think it's fair to say from that, Constantine, this is not going to be our last episode looking at these proposals in further detail over the next couple of years. Um, that is everything that we wanted to cover uh, today in terms of looking at these measures. Um, if we've piqued your interest or you're thinking about these issues in more detail and you'd like to know more about this impact on your business or your investments or how you're thinking about following and understanding and interpreting these policy trends, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details for myself, Rebecca Park, Constantine and David on the Global Council website and also further details on our financial services, tech, media and telecoms teams as well including detail on all of our work regarding Web3 and digital assets. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.